We're continuing to move verse by verse through Galatians. We have a shorter section to tackle today, Galatians 4, 8 through 11. As we have been doing together, once we've got the text in front of us, if you're physically able to stand, let's stand for the reading of God's word. What I'd like to do is take us back uh, to show the contrast of the text to verse 4. So this is Galatians 4, 4. It says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians 4, 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, seven, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for each precious soul that's entered this place. Thank you that we have a chance to uh, consider your word and to be those who hear what the Spirit would say to your church. Lord, this little section that we're going to study is powerful. It was written to a group of early believers, much like us, who had all the temptations of retreat, all the temptations of returning back to the old life, all the temptations of going two steps forward and one step back. Father, we feel that pull. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the God we love. Would you take our hearts and seal them, seal them for thy courts above. Father, we look at ancient Israel and we know how much they were tempted to go back to Egypt, even in the midst of your direct presence and your miracles. And Lord, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, we know that Paul said we need to learn from that example of their failure, lest we fall. So this is a, a text we really need to consider for ourselves, not for somebody else, but for us. So would you do your work? Would you speak to your church? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you do what you want to do this morning and be glorified in our time together? In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Two steps forward, one step back. Maybe that resonates with some of you. I was looking at the origin of the saying, and apparently it comes from an anecdote about a frog in a well. And the story is that the frog would take two leaps forward to try to get out of the well and slide back a little bit. There's another way to say it, that it's one step forward and two steps back, and that may fit with how you feel this morning, <laughs> that sometimes you feel like you take a couple steps forward, or one step forward, then you're a couple back. And this is part of the reality, if we're going to be honest about the Christian life, we all struggle with the temptation to retreat, to turn back, to give up. When we studied the little powerful phrase, Abba, Father, we saw that it was uh, recorded three times in the New Testament, and the one time that Jesus spoke it in Mark 14, 
36, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he cries, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In times of suffering, when we can't make sense of life, and we've been talking about the tragedies that have happened in the Inland Empire and in Southern California and thinking about just the unpredictability of life, it's hard when we suffer, we sometimes want to retreat. And these are, these are forks in the road for many of us to decide whether our faith can carry us forward in times that we have question marks about the problem of evil and about the difficulty of sometimes just the Christian life. And I think we all would do ourselves a favor if we acknowledge that the Christian life can be a challenge. It's a struggle. Paul talks about that struggle in Ephesians 6 when he's talking about the armor of God and he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's our struggle. And I want you to just feel that for a second. It's our collective struggle. You are not alone if you struggle. And it seems like on a given day, we can feel like we're very sold out to the Lord and we're in love with Him and Abba, Father, you know, we feel like maybe we couldn't get any closer to God. And then there's other times when it seems like my flesh can so quickly, you know, take uh, first place in my life and in my attitude. And this is part of what Paul was dealing with with this ancient church, but it it's very relevant to our time. Two steps forward, one step back. He says in verse 8, however, at that time, if you have an ESV, it says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves. Now, some of you may be brand new to the faith. Some of you may be examining the Christian faith. And some of you can think of a time you know, maybe you're many years removed from uh, being a non-Christian where uh, that's a distant memory. And for some of you, it's just months ago that you were a non-Christian. And when you were a non-Christian, the Bible defines that as not knowing God. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Christianity is about knowing God. The idea in the Hebrew is a Hebrew word called yada, and it speaks of intimacy. It speaks of knowing somebody, like the person that you know the best right now on the planet. It's that idea. It's an intimate knowledge. It's captured in the phrase, Abba, Father. It's familial. It's when I'm in the deepest valleys or the highest heights my heart's cry is to my Father, my Father in heaven. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to know God and to be known by God. When God addressed Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, he said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's to be known by God and to know God. I've shared that with people that I've witnessed to. I know God. And some people think, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean you know God? But his spirit bears witness with my spirit that I belong to him. 
And this is what it means to be a Christian. It's a relationship. You may have heard that emphasized in Christian circles because that is what it is. It's not about keeping a calendar. It's not about going to a certain building on a certain day of the week. It's not about how you dress or what you eat or don't eat. Those can be add-ons. Those can be frosting on the cake, if you will, but they're not the core. The core of being a Christian is to know God and to be known by God. This is the beautiful reality of what it means to be a Christian. It's that he knows me and I know him. It's that his spirit resides within me. Isn't that fabulous? Isn't that amazing? We're not talking about religious duty here. We're talking about relationship. But there was a time, and we read this incredible section about uh, uh, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son, his Holy Spirit, verse 6, into our hearts we cry, Abba, Father, we're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, verse 7, we're an heir through God, all these celebratory things. But then Paul says, however, (laughs) however, hold on a minute, think of a contrast. Formerly, when you did not know God, verse 8, you were slaves. To what? To those which by nature are no gods. Now you could say your former state as a non-Christian was one of ignorance of God without a relationship with God. Ephesians 2.12 says, you were without God and without hope, excluded from the promises of God. And this is captured in a word that is the word life. You didn't have life. And someone might say, well, what do you mean? Here I am breathing, walking around. No, we're talking about a quality of life. Eternal life is not just about a quantity, it's about a quality of life. It's about the life of God living inside of you. Alienation is the condition of a non-Christian. It's to be separated from God. It's to be separated from His love and His life. Not that He doesn't love you, but you don't know Him. You're not in a relationship with Him because it is sin that separates and alienates. And Jesus becomes that bridge to bring us back to God. And it is important that we remember, if you've been a Christian for many decades, that you don't forget where you've come from. Because it's easy to forget. If you've been walking with the Lord for a while... It's easy to forget how far you have come. This idea of Abba Father, I mentioned to you last week, uh, is in the setting of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in the setting of Romans chapter 8, verse 15. If you didn't mark this down last week, where Abba Father is repeated other than Galatians 4. Those are the two other places. And Romans 8 is probably one of my most favorite chapters in the Bible because it starts with no condemnation, Romans 8.1. It talks about there's no separation, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, Romans 8.39, I think it is. Those are the two bookends, and in between it says God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. Isn't that beautiful? That's where that Abba Father is set, but Romans 8, also talks about that we go through trials and tribulations. We are slaughtered all day long. At the end of Romans 8, Paul says, but then he says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is the beauty of what it means to be a Christian. It means I can turn into God in my tough times rather than turning away from God. 
But this short section does explore the reality that some of us take two steps forward and one step back, and maybe it feels like we take one step forward and two steps back. As strange as it may sound, the pull of the old life or former life before Christ pulls at us, and the temptation is to return to slavery. That is so tragic. Look at Galatians 5.1. Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to what? A yoke of slavery. Don't do that. Don't go back and put yourself in prison when the prison door has been unlocked. Don't go back to the old haunts. Don't go back to the old ways. You were slaves back then. Now you're free. Keep standing in your freedom. Don't let anybody take it away. Don't let the devil take it away. You might ask, why do people give in and go back? Why am I tempted to go back to my old life? Two thoughts, and you may have more. One, I think there's a realization at some point in the Christian life that, that's gonna, that this is going to cost me. And maybe I didn't read the full contract the first time I walked forward at a church service or a crusade because you can't get the whole contract in one sermon. And if you got the whole contract in one sermon, you might not sign up. Anybody? (laughs) Hey, I'm 30 years into this now, and when I first walked down the aisle, there was no doubt the gospel was true, and I was walking down with my beautiful wife to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I was carrying a big bag of baggage behind me. And people didn't tell me the first day I got saved, now get ready, because the Christian life is going to be, it's going to cost you, and you're going to have a spiritual enemy called the devil, and there's going to be challenges to your flesh and your pride, and he's going to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ and put you in a refiner's fire. How many of you would say, yeah, baby? No, when you first become a Christian, hey, everything's new, and that's beautiful, and that's the way it should be. But there's a cost. Jesus said, count the cost. Who builds a building without first calculating the cost? Who goes to war without first examining whether or not you can win the battle? And there's a cost to being a Christian. Secondly, why do people relapse? Familiarity. Let's face it, sometimes we've been so used to certain triggers We get triggered to stress, we get triggered to fear, and we go back to things that make us comfortable. For some people, they they abuse drugs. For other people, it might be that they go back and they eat a gallon of ice cream. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Anyway, frozen yogurt. You You can fill in the blanks here. And of course, it gets much more serious than that, right? Because for some Christians, they're tempted to go back to pornography. They're tempted to go back to a lot of things. Thinking that maybe somehow that will be the answer. Cost. Maybe familiarity. One writer says, The pre-Christian experiences of Jews and Gentiles were decidedly different, but Paul thinks of both of them as times of enslavement. This is Wilson. He says, For some it dawns on them that to go any further would require more than they want to give. 
So we glanced over our shoulder at the past and concluded it would be easier simply to turn around and head back rather than to continue and move forward in the face of difficulties. This is where the Galatians are, perhaps where you are or have been. They find themselves in a tough spot. The way forward doesn't look either obvious or easy. So they decided to turn back to what's familiar, close quote. And one of the things that's been pounding at the Galatian Christians is false teaching. They've had people come into town and say, it's not as easy as the Apostle Paul has made it sound. You must do this to be saved. You must be circumcised. You must keep the laws of Moses. You must have a kosher diet. And on and on it goes. And so some were turning back. Some were heading back to the old familiar things, but Paul says it's an enslavement. It was a time when you didn't know God. You were not free. And the Bible tells us that not everyone that uh, is just simply walking the planet is a child of God. A little while back, we did a memorial service for a young man, died in his early 20s. And this place was filled with a lot of people, and the uncle of this young man gave the eulogy. And it was a heavy, sad service. And the uncle stood up and he said these words, after saying a lot of different things, he said to this crowd, not everyone is going to heaven. It's not an automatic. And it was about as quiet in the room as it is right now. And this room was filled with a lot of people that are not regularly in church. And when the words left his mouth on a human level, I was even uncomfortable. <laughs> Although I've said the same words so many times I've lost count to warn people about the reality of heaven and hell. But when they left his mouth, I was like, ooh. It kind of even made me a little uncomfortable. Not everybody, and, and we're talking about someone who's just died and people are mourning and it's difficult. But let me ask you a question, brethren. How many people a couple years removed from those words being spoken in a place like this, are probably thinking about those words. Now, we could get up here and say, oh, everybody's okay, everybody's going to make it in the end, everybody will just be up with the Lord and looking down on us, and, we, and we, can, we can comfort ourselves and pat ourselves on the back all day long. But the question is, is that true? Or is that just us trying to make everybody, including ourselves, feel comfortable? without rocking the boat. See, not everybody's going to end up in heaven because not everybody knows God. In fact, Jesus shared some um, parables where he is pictured as the king or the bridegroom, and he says to people knocking on the door, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't know you. I don't know you, and you don't know me, so depart from me. And I'll tell you, these are some of the verses that are so strong and so sobering that they make us go, wow. And they come from the lips of Jesus. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. So this becomes obviously so significant that we are no longer slaves, we are sons, we are heirs, but in order to be there, 
We had to come to Christ to be set free. Their slavery, if you look at verse 8, was to false gods, to those which by nature are no gods. Now, this is an important theological point. Please mark this down. There is only one God by nature. Okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God by nature. There are other so-called gods, write down in your notes, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, where there are so-called gods, lords many, gods many, at least in the world, right? Like in the Roman pantheon or the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses. Lords many, gods many, but with a small g. There is only one true God, keyword by nature. Within himself, he is God. Now, you can make a God out of anything, right? You can make an idol pretty much out of anything. But there's only one true God by nature, Galatians 4.8. And those who were previously non-Christians, which, you know, obviously that's a very wide category, they were subservient, these Galatian believers, to the gods they formerly served. They served other gods. Write down for your notes. I don't have time to go there. Joshua 24, 2 and 14 and 15, where Joshua essentially says, hey, your father served the false gods on the other side of the river. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's the... Here's the truth. We served in our previous non-Christian life false gods. Now, we may not have thought we were doing that, but when we worship the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forevermore, Romans 1, when we did things that had to do with uh, worshiping ourselves or buying into the popular notions of the culture, We were serving the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls the devil the God of this world. The God of this age. Many people don't necessarily think about this every day, but if you're a non-Christian, you are marching to the beat of a drum of a different God. Because if the true God's not your Lord, then you have a different master. And some of them might say, well, I'm the master of my own ship. Well, then you're your own God. Maybe you shave your God every morning or curl her hair. (laughs) But the point is the same. And it was a point of enslavement. I've talked to many people over the years about Jesus and about being free. I had one guy outside of a gym tell me, he goes, I'm I'm happy in my non-Christian life because I do what I want to do. And hey, at least he was honest, right? I was in a school parking lot. I had just taught some fourth and fifth graders in an outreach program we had. And there was a teacher getting into her car. And I began to try to witness to her. I asked her if she went to church. And she said, oh, no. And she got some attitude. She said, oh, no, I don't go to church. I have become an atheist. You should try it one day. It's very freeing. And she slammed her car door in my face. Have a nice day. <laughs> God bless you. you. You seem to be free from your anger. <laughs> because you don't even know me, and all I did was mention Jesus, and you're slamming car doors in my face. 
Try it sometime. It makes you free. <laughs> oh. Why would anyone choose to be back under bondage after being set free? One writer says, perhaps because traveling in that direction, going back to bondage, requires little, if any, faith. It's familiar territory. Think of the children of Israel. There they are, hundreds of years in Egyptian bondage. They're finally set free. They've been crying out to God, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. Here comes the deliverer, Moses. Ten plagues on Egypt. The last one is the, the Passover. The blood of the lamb saves people if it's on the doorpost and lentil. Out they go with the treasures of Egypt. As they're leaving Egypt, the Egyptians are burying their dead in full view. There wasn't one Egyptian household where there wasn't somebody dead. They're burying their dead in graves, and I'm sure that was quite a process, as Israel's going out triumphantly. To the edge of the Red Sea they go, and God opens the sea and parts it and makes the, the uh, ground dry. Victory praises. The Lord is exalted. The horse and rider have been cast into the sea. The Lord is a mighty warrior. The Lord is his name. But it didn't take long until things got a little bit difficult in the desert. If you're a VeggieTale fan, it goes like this. We didn't have a lot of fun in the desert. All right? And they... Sorry, but anyway. Consider Israel. After being delivered in the ways I've described, and there's much more that could be say, said, liberated from Egyptian bondage, they wanted to go back, confronted with a difficult wilderness transition, says one writer. They wanted to turn back. They said, would that we were in Egypt. Numbers 14, 3 and 4 says, would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. This is tough out here in the desert. I want you to key on the word transition. Sometimes transitions are tough, right? And the desert was a transitionary period of time. It shouldn't have taken as long as it did, <laughs> but it took how long? 40, 40 years is a long time. But they, they made it that long because they kept messing up. It shouldn't have taken that long. It should have taken a relatively short period of time. Transitions are just that. They're transitions. And yes, they can be uncomfortable. But brethren, if this applies to you, hang in there. Don't turn back to Egypt. What? Think about it. Think it through for a second. We're going back to Egypt. For what? Because there's steak dinners there. Yeah, but you're going to be doing mud dances while taskmasters whip you on the back and you'll be in slavery. You're going back to slavery. Yeah, but you get onions when you order your hamburger. <laughs> Say what? But this is kind of what we do. We romanticize the old life. Being a Christian is hard. Remember those times when you wish to wear the lampshade on our head at the party and it, yeah, remember the late into the night what happened in the next morning when you knelt before the porcelain god in a way that you shouldn't have been? Think it through. 
You see, they had been converted from enslavement to false gods. In rapid fire, they were imprisoned under sin, Galatians 3.22, held captive under the law, Galatians 3.23, enslaved under the elemental principles, Galatians 4.3, slaves to, the, to those which by nature are not gods, Galatians 4.8. Psalm 96 says, verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord, by contrast, made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Why would you go back to an idol pounded out with human hands? Who, though they have eyes, they cannot see. Though they have ears, they cannot hear. Though they have a mouth, they cannot speak. God says to his own people, caught in the cycle of idolatry, cry out to them next time you need help. See what they do for you. And we know what our old slave masters did to us, I know what they did to me. I know where they left me. I know the regret and the emptiness that I felt over and over again by serving those old gods. But the devil gets us to focus just on a few things instead of the big picture. Psalm 106.36 says, Israel served their idols which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Psalm 106, verse 37. These idols made Israel do such unthinkable things that God, in human language, says, you did things that didn't even enter into my mind that someone could do such things. Your idols will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. And that is what we need to remember when we're tempted to go back. And we are. Jeremiah 16, 20. Jeremiah says, can, can man make gods for himself? Yet they are not gods. Therefore, behold, I'm going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might. And they shall know that my name is the Lord. Jeremiah 16, 20 and 21. And Jonah, from the belly of the sea monster, decided to pray. And what was Jonah doing? Running away from God. <laughs> and he's in the belly of the sea monster. And Jonah prayed, and he says these words. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, their loyal love. Idols are called many times in the Bible vain because they're like a vapor. They pass away quickly. They are empty. They don't give, idols don't give, they take, take, and take some more. Amen? And Paul says, why would you do that? Why would you go back to slavery? God's given you not the spirit of slavery, Romans 8.15, but the, the spirit of sonship. He doesn't want you to have a, a spirit of fear. And many people are held hostage by their fears. And so, verse 9 says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back, this is the ESV, again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Now that you know God, how can you turn back? The word for return is epistrepho in Greek. It's a word often used for turning to Christ to being converted. But here, it's used in the opposite sense. It's turned on its head. 
so that epistrepho here means turning back away from God to the old ways. And I don't think that we have to think very long to consider some faces maybe that you've known along this journey that are nowhere to be found now, though they made a Christian confession. And you might say, well, where are they now? Probably in some form of servitude to their old gods. And Paul says, as he said in Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished that you're turning away so quickly. Turning away from God, that's the ultimate tragedy, but turning back to the elemental things. Remember last week, if you were with us, we began to examine what the elemental things are. Some people think they're demonic spirits. Some people think they uh, have to do with the elementary things of the world, like earth and air and fire and water and what the pagans used to worship. Some say that a modern way to capture the elemental worthless things is by sex, drugs, money, and prosperity. And back they went. And so they were leaving their freedom. I was listening to a radio show one day, it was a sports talk radio show, and the radio hosts did not appear to be Christians because they were kind of mocking Christianity, and they said that one of their buddies had recently become a Christian, and they kind of considered him a bit of a bummer now. He said, oh, you're a Christian now, Christian. Oh, you're a Christian. And, and they said this, they said, he'll be back. And then one of the hosts of the radio talk show said, they always come back. That was his cynical attitude of converted Christians. He'll be back. Wow. But for so many of you, I look around this room, and I've known some of you for decades, and your conversion has stuck. Oh, you struggle. Oh, you, you have had you know, a time of growth, but you haven't gone back. Whenever progress with Christ proves difficult, says one writer, we hear voices clamoring for us to come back. And if we listen, we'll find our minds flooded with the memories of how good life used to be. But we must not listen to those hollow sounds or look to those mirage memories. They are just old attachments Razzing us, give them only a deaf ear and a blind eye. I was reading a little bit in a commentary about Augustine, a very notable early church father who talked about his struggles coming out of his old life away from God and now trusting God and how those old voices used to pound at him. And he had to fight them away and refuse to answer the door when sin was knocking. Verse 10 says, you observe days. Some believe that this is Sabbath days or special festival days. Months. Some believe this refers to the new moon that marked the beginning of each month. Seasons. Perhaps great feasts or festivals and years. Most likely sabbatical years or perhaps even the year of Jubilee. You observe. See the word observe in verse 10? It's a word that means you carefully observe, you spy it out with meticulous, scrupulous uh, attention to de detail. You observe the days. Now, two major views that you need to know about on this verse 10. Some scholars believe that the Galatian believers have returned to the pagan calendar. 
What was the pagan calendar? Filled with festivals. Festivals to the moon god. Festivals to the sun god. Festivals to the Roman emperor. And you gave offerings and you were part perhaps of uh, uh, parades and, and, and the like. And you honored the false gods. And, and some believe it's the pagan festivals, the pagan calendar that the Galatians are going back to. But if you're thinking with me from a big picture standpoint, you know that one of the biggest challenges against Galatian Gentiles, non-Jews, was they were being told that they had to keep the Torah, the law of Moses, they had to be circumcised, keep the food laws, etc. Everybody with me? And so I think the majority of scholars say the temptation for the Galatian believers is to go back and keep the Torah in a meticulous fashion. Shabbat the Sabbath, the major festivals, a kosher diet, circumcision, and on and on it goes. Now, I've, I've encouraged us to be careful to see that Torah observance, that is celebrating Passover, tabernacles, etc., is not a bad thing. And if someone is a Jewish Christian, or even if you're a Gentile, if you want to celebrate those things, that's just fine. But don't make those things salvific. Explanation. Don't think that by doing those things, that's what saves you. Christ saves you. By grace, through faith, not by works. Because by the works of the law, no flesh, Galatians 2.16, will be justified. Some of you have a background where certain days had to be honored in certain ways. And if you didn't do it exactly according to the prescription of that particular religious expression, you felt what? Some of you can really relate to this. Condemned. Why? Because you didn't do on that day or that time what you were supposed to do, and somehow you thought that meant that you were going to lose your salvation. And Paul's saying, no! No! Circumcision doesn't save you. Skip ahead. Look at Galatians 5, 2 through 4. He says, Behold, I, Paul, Galatians 5, 2, I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. In the sense of, if you think that's going to save you, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. And then, buckle your seatbelt. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Oh my goodness. This is how serious the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these issues are. What's going on here? Is it the pagan calendar? Is it the Mosaic calendar? I think the evidence from a big picture standpoint is it's the Mosaic calendar, but for the wrong reasons. Look, if you want to celebrate Passover, God bless you. But don't think that if you miss the celebration, or you didn't keep the Sabbath perfectly, etc., you're not saved. Jesus came into a Jewish world where so many people were under the extra things added by the rabbis that they couldn't even move on the Sabbath. They didn't even know what it meant to experience grace. And so many in our culture think that their salvation is by performance or their salvation is if I do this certain thing on this certain day or don't eat that or... No, look, Christ saves you. If you want to keep the festivals, etc., 
you do that as an expression of gratitude or praise. Final verse. I fear for you, 11, that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. Late last night, I started thinking about the phrase, I fear for you, and I wrote this, and I'm just going to read to you what I wrote last night. In this last verse, there's something that struck me deeply. It is in this phrase, I fear for you. If you have a new King James, I'm afraid for you. Consider the recipients of this word. It is not spoken to those outside the church as much as that applies. It is spoken to those who have heard and accepted, apparently, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there a place in our modern preaching and hearing for a phrase like, I'm afraid for you? I wonder if any of us can claim that we have ever said this from a pulpit or otherwise. The temptation is not to say it for all the reasons that we're well aware of. Paul has experienced their incredible kindness toward him. He's aware that he doesn't want to have an adversarial relation with them or relationship or be considered their enemy. Look at 4, 15, and 16. Paul says, he says, Where then is that sense of blessing you had? 4, 15. I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Note it. This is a study ahead of us. So, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I think we can hear the spirit of Paul's concern. He cares enough to tell them the truth, and he is legitimately fearful for them. I must search my heart. I ask myself, if I am caring and fearful enough for potential lost souls to take similar risks. I told you about that memorial service where the uncle stood up and said, it's not automatic. Not everybody's going to heaven. You must turn to Christ. And even though it might hit us on a human level as maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe that's uncaring. But I wonder how many of those attendees will remember these words, whether they like them or not, and what fruit has come as a result, and what fruit would come if we do the opposite and we don't tell people what they need to hear. Think about this. Truth spoken Spirit-directed in love for the right reasons at the right time with the right motive can be extremely powerful. They can change a life, perhaps yours today. As the writer of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I say this as a pastor with a heart for God's people and a heart for the lost to say, have we gone, gone so far the other way in political correctness trying to make everybody feel good about themselves, that we've moved away from phrases like, I'm afraid for you. And look, in the normal course of life, I understand the temptation to be soft and, and gracious. Look, we are all lost and we're all ignorant. But I also look at helicopter crashes and car crashes and a sense of urgency about people coming to know the Lord. Everybody with me? And I ask the question, what, where is the place for I'm afraid for you? See, the most important not to t reason not to turn back is we turn our back on the one who died for us, our creator and our savior who died in our place, and we turn back to that which is empty and futile. I picture Peter. Lord, though all forsake you, I will not. And Jesus says, Peter, this night, 
you're going to deny that you know me three times. And Peter, he did it. He denied the Lord, and he went out, and he wept bitterly, but he turned back again. And here's the good news. If you've been a prodigal, if you've been away, you can turn back again. Paul says, look, I, I don't want to end up in a situation where perhaps, end of 11, I labored over you in vain. None of us want that. None of us want to do anything that we have done substantively for unfruitful purpose purposes or empty results. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to look back on a bunch of work that they did with a group of people and say, oh, it was all for nothing. That's Paul's concern. I don't think it's a selfish concern. I think he's just saying on that day when I'm before the Lord, I want to present you as my joy and crown. Don't turn back. All this would then be vain. Oh, I have no greater joy, says John, that my, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Oh, God, help us. Help us be like Paul. Would you bow? He compared himself to a woman in labor until Christ was formed in this church. And Father, thank you that you're so patient with us, so patient with me. This little powerful section is, it's life-changing, really. And there's warnings here about not going back to the old ways, but there's also this great hope that we are sons and daughters of the king, heirs of the kingdom of God. We can't turn back. There's no place else to go. You alone, Peter would say, have the words of eternal life. And Lord, when the going gets tough, and it does, and when we have our question marks, help us to lean into you. Help us to trust you. I'm going to ask you to keep your heart bowed for a moment. However the Lord's spoken to you through this message right now, would you just take a little salah time, salah time, just, just consider what's been spoken. Just keep your eyes closed. Let God's word do its work. Do you need to come back home? Maybe uh, you've kind of Maybe there's something about the gospel that you could take more seriously here. Maybe it's something you need to celebrate, your adoption as a son or daughter. Maybe it's a combination of many things. Father, would you help us by your spirit to hear your voice and to just amend our ways to your ways. Bless this beautiful, wonderful congregation. They, I know they're so hungry to hear from you and grow. Bless them, Lord. And if you're here and you don't know that you know Jesus, just give your life right now. Just ask him to save you. If you're a prodigal, just say, Father, I'm coming home.